Uh, hello, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Chris Haney of the California Budget and Policy Center, uh, who examines all things fiscal and budget-wise and can give us the fruit of his analyses. Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, because it came up during um, the current year budget when it was being examined last year, is the GAN limit. So uh, what exactly is the GAN limit and should we be focusing on that? Should we be concerned about it or is it ancient history after voters approved it, what, 40 years ago? Yeah, so it is, it is something we need to be paying attention to as the governor's budget proposal comes out. The GAN limit is essentially a constitutional spending limit that voters enacted, as you said, 40 years ago, back in the 1970s. Uh, it allows the state's spending to increase annually uh, based on a formula that, inc that includes population and inflation. Uh, but what happens is if the state revenues start to expand very quickly, like they do during good economic times uh, in many instances, the revenues can enable spending that would go over the limit. And the limit says that when we go over the limit, 50% of the excess has to be go given to K-12 schools and community colleges and the other 50% has to be rebated to taxpayers. Now, most years over the last four decades, we haven't hit the limit, but this, we're in this weird situation where the state's revenues are coming in very quickly and in large amounts, um, despite the pandemic, because our tax system is collecting a lot of revenue from high wealth individuals and corporations. And so the, and yet the state's population has been sort of slowly declining in terms of its growth rate. Um, and so it's like the factors that limit the, that, that force the limit to stay constrained are constraining it and the revenue is going up really fast. And so that means state leaders have to figure out what's included in the limit. What do they do if they go over it? How can they avoid going over it? Cause they'd rather have the discretion to spend the money the way they'd like. Uh, and, and what do they do about this limit that's 40 years old and is now constraining their ability to govern the state. Mm -hmm. The uh, reserve last year, I think going into or the current year budget, but when they, when it was debated last year, when it was discussed last year, it was about 29 billion, the LAO said, but the latest figure I saw on the LAO's uh, website, which was current as of November was 33 billion this year. It's going up. There's, we're in this weird situation where, on one hand, we hear about economic doom and catastrophe. And on the other hand, the state budget reflects this huge in, incursion of revenue. Um, is, are we basically relying on billionaires and millionaires to fill our tax coffers? It sounds like it. Billionaires, millionaires and corporations uh, in large part, you know, the, 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 it's, and the current growth in the revenues in, the, in this year and the growth that's anticipated for next year is definitely a reflection of this very weird dichotomy in the current economic outlook for the country and for the state where high wealth individuals, large multinational corporations are doing super well and folks at the middle and the bottom end of the spectrum, particularly folks who are in sectors really affected by COVID related short downs are struggling to make ends meet. And you add in you know, housing costs in California are continuing to actually grow, in some cases, even faster than they were before the pandemic. And that's pinching 
uh, folks at the low and middle income levels as well. So it, for the state, it's, um, it's not a bad problem to have. However, it means the state has revenue and it has the ability to make some decisions to try to help folks who are being constrained or, having, or struggling because of the pandemic. One, one problem the, a, a previous governor got into, God, this is almost 20 years ago now, but uh, was Gray David. There was a bubble, revenue bubble, largely coming from Silicon Valley and the capital gains. And it, there was a lot of money that came in at once. And Davis had decided in some cases to have ongoing programs rather than one time ongoing when the times got worse and the budget suffered, those ongoing programs are still still in effect. Do you, do you get any sense we've learned our lesson from those days and we won't be committing our, we've got a lot of money, but we won't be committing it to programs that can go on until times get bad. I think both Governor Brown and Governor Newsom, who in many respects have budgeted pretty similarly, the two of them might differ about that. They have their policy priority differences for sure. But yeah. in terms of like their overall fiscal governance of the state, they're on pretty similar paths, which has been that when there are these revenue bubbles that we tend to see when high wealth individuals and corporations do well, uh, they're, they've been more focused on making sure those funds go into a reserve that there are one-time expenditures, that the, some of those one-time expenditures are focused on infrastructure and facilities and those kinds of things. Uh, and then kind of trying to keep the ongoing expenditures focused um, on where there are really high need issues, particularly for low-income um, families and households. So I think, you know, we will see some, like the current year budget that we're in when Governor Newsom and the legislature enacted that last year, and they have this huge surplus to work with, most of that surplus they spent on one-time kinds of expenditures, things for to, to provide cash to people to um, address the effects of COVID, public health sorts of issues, homelessness sorts of issues, infrastructure. And Governor Newsom has already said that you, we can expect his proposal for this next year to look like last year's proposal. So I think we're going to see some of the same. You know, I know you folks analyze the budget in terms of its impact on, on middle folk, lower income, the, you know, real people as opposed to, you know, the large, the macro dollar amounts, you know, agency for agency and that kind of thing. What would you like to see in this budget? What are you hoping to see in this budget? We don't know what it is yet. It could be coming out as early as tomorrow. We're on January 6th taping this, so it could be tomorrow. Likely will be Monday is what I'm hearing. But what would you like to see happen in this document? Yeah, I think the first thing we'd like to see happen is um, – an aggressive reflection that the pandemic isn't over uh, and that while the state's revenues um, and the macro kind of economic picture look pretty good, the rest of the state, the real people, you know, the low and middle income folks who are trying to get by are still struggling and they're struggling even more than normal because things like, you know, they're facing quarantines at schools and the prospects of childcare is center is closing and child care providers going out of business and the kinds of things that then make their day-to-day -day lives a lot harder to live and affect their ability to be in the workforce. So, you know, I think there's some temporary assistance that's needed, just basic cash assistance. Uh, in this year's budget, the governor had two rounds of Golden State stimulus payments that went out to households that make less than $75,000 a year. I think another round of something like that to reflect that Look, we're you know we're going right into this Omicron surge, and there's going to be other economic effects of that. So I think some temporary cash assistance like that, some temporary food 
assistance for the folks who are really low income and need some access to some food support um, and the, you know, the continuing demands of the public health crisis. I mean, so I think there's some one-time temporary emergency response type of work that needs to be done. One thing that's happening with, with the pandemic is that because of this new level of infections, hospitals are getting very, very crowded. That's at the top of most of the stories I'm reading is about how the hospital resources are really being strained. Is there any budget remedy for that? Uh, is there anything the state can do to help alleviate that? Well, there's things the state can do directly, particularly where there's there's public subsidies, or whether public households, or you know, I'm sorry, public hospitals, or where there are subsidies of the hospitals themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a big a big um, issue in the current year budget when they were doing this process last year was that the local county health offices were saying we need larger amounts of funding and ongoing funding in order to be able to address the current effects of the pandemic and to be prepared for its ongoing effects in the years ahead. And the administration didn't initially propose any additional and ongoing funding. They were able to negotiate some additional funding um, in the actual what got enacted, but that's gonna be a continuing issue going forward. Those, you know, those local county public health agencies need a lot more support than they've been getting. Uh, and it's, a, and it's it, it, you know, from a, just a basic intuitive kind of standpoint, it doesn't really make sense that the state isn't using more of its largesse at current to be supporting those local public health responses. Well, one question I have. So the situation that we had several months ago when the Delta surge was subsiding and before Omicron had come forward, uh, I, I feel like at least personally for me, and I think for most people, we had a very different picture of what 2022 was going to look like, or the early part of 2022. And I'm wondering how long ago this budget was written and how long it takes them to do a budget. So my, I guess I'm wondering, were they planning on a different 2022? Now, suddenly they're having to deal with this Omicron surge, or is that something that they they would be able to ref- change that more quickly than I would imagine? Can you, how long does it take to do a budget? How, like, how long have they been working on this particular budget? Yeah, there are a couple of different ways to answer the how does the budget process work kind of question. You know, the, the the period we tend to focus on is the January to June period. The governor proposes a new, a new budget in January, which is what he's about to do. Legislature debates that for four or five months. Governor gets to propose a second round of that in May, something we call the May revision. And then they negotiate again and they enact a budget by the end of June so that the state's fiscal year can start on July 1. But the process actually starts right back over. Like the state agencies in the governor's office and the Department of Finance start thinking about next year's budget right away. To go to your point, I think one of the hard parts about this is the the meat of that process, right, from proposal to enactment from January to June is happening about a fiscal year that's like a ways out, right? And so you're trying to forecast economic circumstances, which would be hard to do accurately and well in normal times. And then you add the pandemic and the unknowns about, will there be another variant? What will we have to do to respond to that variant? Uh, And I think that creates some new um, challenges. Uh, You know, we knew when we enacted uh, this year's budget that 2022 from a revenue standpoint was probably going to look pretty good. And that, 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 that there's even more, I think, optimism about that now based on revenue collections, but on the spending side, there's going to be all sorts of, challenges. Um, child, the child care 
industry has really been decimated by the pandemic. And as the more variants keep popping up, the harder it is for folks to get back as providers or as childcare clinics to get back on their feet and survive. Um, if schools start closing again because there's outbreaks of Omicron or there are other surges, that's going to create some other challenges in terms of uh, pressures on public education. Uh, so, you know, there are spending side challenges that come with all this as well. They don't seem to have a lot of lead time uh, to react to things as they happen uh, very quickly. My understanding of part of the budget is that the heads of agencies during uh, November, October, November, I guess into December, mm -hmm. approach, they give their wish list for what they want for the coming year, and they go to finance, and the finance department takes a look at it. There's a lot of negotiating there. But that process started before this latest round of variants started you know, being felt. So my, so one question I would have is how much, how quickly can the administration pivot at any given time? How can they turn on a dime and get some money right at the last minute for something? Is there emergency funding built into the budget to, to take care of contingencies like this? They do have the ability to move more quickly than the process that I just described a minute ago. Uh, you know, they did last year, for instance. So, um, you know, if you remember in January of 2021, we were still, we were only about six, seven months into the pandemic and sort of in the heart of like trying to address what the economic effects were. And so they're, you know, they, 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 they took some emergency budget actions where basically the governor said, hey, I want this to get done. I'd like the legislature to vote on it early. And they extended the eviction moratorium. They passed the first round of the cash assistance that they called the Golden State Stimulus. And they did that in like January, February, and March. And then they kind of let the rest of the process move through as normal. So they do have the ability to move more quickly as needed. They also have the ability to come back afterward, after they've enacted a budget and say, hey, conditions have changed. There's some emergent, we need, we need to make some emergency shifts. They don't tend to like to do that because it kind of reopens the political process a bit. Um, but they, but do they do have the ability to make some changes after the budget's been enacted if conditions change. Speaking of a, uh the political process, the politics 2022, obviously it's going to be an election year, a lot of elections. And so uh, looking at the budget, do you see just off the top, any immediate, any impacts on our budgeting this year as it relates to who gets elected, who doesn't, uh, how this all plays out? Redistricting is, you know, just finished. It's going to start playing out. Yeah, you know, I, that's hard to say in terms of the, the state part of that, the state elections, you know, there, there isn't a... Um, uh, a notable challenger to the governor yet in terms of the 2022 election, that would probably be the most likely um, scenario to have some effect on the governor's proposals. Uh, it, you know, it may adjust um, some of what the legislative composition looks like, but I don't know how much it will change the actual legislature's proposals because those have to get kind of corralled within each house, right? The, the pro tem and the um, speaker of the respective houses have to, you know, bring their, their caucuses together and make that work. So that process will be somewhat similar. Um, I do think that the big thing that will probably affect what is in the state budget is the remaining questions about what happens at the federal level, which are definitely going to be affected by the fact that there are elections nationally in 2022 that matter. So, you know, the, the, the Biden administration's Build Back Better plan that everybody thought would pass before the end of 2021 and then didn't. Um, is still sitting out there with question marks about whether there's going to be another influx of federal funding into states. Um, 
and that will have major implications for the state's budget. So for example, there's a big pot of money there in the Build Back Better plan that would help the state rebuild its childcare system. If that bill doesn't pass at the federal level um, and could be affected by the fact that this is an election year and maybe even harder to get things through Congress, then the state's gonna have to figure out what to do about a childcare system crisis that's been made, you know, continues to be made worse by the pandemic. So that's just one example. You know, I know um, the federal government, federal money plays a big role in California, on all, as you mentioned, on lots of different levels. Um, so year to year, what is there an estimate, is any thought about what percentage of California's budget is, is based on federal dollars? I know, I, I believe that uh, Medi-Cal is, or used to be, there was a fairly close matching of state and federal funds. But how much do we rely on federal dollars? It's always a question that comes up. Yeah, the you know if you take all of the state's funds, um, all the, everything that makes up the state budget in total, yeah. federal dollars are, are about one third typically of that total. Maybe a little higher in some years, but it's you know by a couple of percentage points. But about one third is basically the rule of thumb. And as you noted, most of that is actually, or you know, probably about three and four of those dollars are actually coming in for Medi-Cal and for healthcare services. And so, you know, the federal government reimbursing the state for providing Medi-Cal or the state's Medicaid system. Uh, but, you know, those, the that, I mean, I haven't looked at it most recently, but the American Rescue Plan Act that was passed back in 2021, uh, the infrastructure plan that was passed in late 2021, there are some temporary influxes of more federal dollars that are coming in in significant ways that the state has some ability to make decisions about how they're allocated, um, when they go out. And, you know, the, the like, for example, the American Rescue Plan um, allows the state to spend out some of those funds over the next three to four years. So, yeah. you know, that there will be probably, there'll, there's, there'll be a larger presence of federal dollars in the state budget over the next few years. Now, I know famously, California was one of the states that tended to give more money to the feds than they got back. Do you know, is that still true? You know, as of a couple of years ago, it was still true in the sense of like, you know, the, the what taxpayers in California are contributing to federal coffers was larger than the amount of federal spending that was coming back into the right, state. Exactly. Um, that tends to be the case for states with um, uh, a lot of uh, high like, like a lot of corporations and a lot of high wealth individuals. So you see the same type of thing for New York or Illinois or New Jersey, those kinds of things. Uh, I don't know if the latest rounds of federal dollars uh, have changed that picture in any dramatic way. Uh, a lot of the assistance that's coming in from the federal government is actually designed to go to um, populations that are in need, um, you know, either because of income um, low income issues or because they've been affected by the pandemic in some way. And California does have a larger share of its population um, than a lot of other states. So it may have evened out a little bit um, over time, but I haven't seen the most recent information. Okay. Uh, Chris, one last question. The, uh, have you, are you hearing any scuttlebutt about what is going to be in this year's, what people are talking around the water cooler about this year's budget? We have not. So I thought, uh, I pass it on to you and see if you've heard anything about what may or may not be in this budget this year. We haven't even seen a water cooler in almost a year and a half. Yeah, that's right. true. <laughs> yeah, you know, honestly, we have probably heard far less this year than we've heard in in many of the prior years. 
Uh, there's been a lot more radio silence coming out of the administration about what might be in this budget. You know, the, the only signal of note that, uh, that we've heard as the governor has said publicly that, um, as I noted earlier, that we can expect his proposal for this year to look like last, the current year's enacted budget, uh, which would mean a lot of one-time investments to address the pandemic, one-time investments in infrastructure, uh, I think it's likely that the one-time investments in infrastructure will have a heavy emphasis on addressing things like supply chain issues, which is a big, uh -huh. um, you know, a big issue for us here in California that affects the rest of the nation. And then I think there's a question about what's what's ongoing. The Legislative Analyst Office um, did signal in November with their forecast for the state that even though they thought a lot of the funds that have come in should be used for one-time purposes that they felt there was three to $8 billion of room in the state budget for ongoing investments. And so I think there were, there's, you know, that you're going to see some things like a major push to expand Medi-Cal to um, the remaining undocumented Californians who can't receive it, which is the group that's 26 to 49 years old. So that would be an ongoing expenditure. Uh, I think you'll see some other pushes for ongoing expenditures around things related to housing and homelessness, uh, which remain major challenges for the state. Great. Fair enough. Chris Haney of the California Budget and Policy Center, thank you so much for joining us. All right, John, so you ready to, to turn to our favorite part of the show? Chris Haney, thank you so much again. And uh, Tim Foster and I have the uh, sad duty of pointing out who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Tentatively, we, we picked Harley Ruda. Um, Tim, what do you think? I would say that in this week, when it seems like there was really not a lot of drama uh, in in California politics, Harley Ruda is, is probably the person who had the worst week. Although I think we should note that uh, Kelly Earnby, who is a Republican politician from uh, Orange County, passed away from COVID, complications of COVID, after being a loud voice in the anti-vaccination movement. Uh, her husband clarified that she never had been vaccinated. And... I think that falls a little far afield of our normal sort of lighthearted look at who had the worst week, but it is a reminder that uh, politics is not everything and uh, don't let politics get the best of your common sense and uh, just note her passing. And, you know, if, if we were being a little more uh, hardcore about our worst week, she would be, she would be someone that uh, we could list. But I think in the scope of what we actually do normally consider the worst week in California politics, I think Harley Ruda, who was planning on a big comeback to Congress or, you know, a run, I should say, uh, found himself written into a district uh, that would have also included uh, sitting Congresswoman Katie Porter. Well, he, uh, was a longtime Republican, traditional Republican, as he himself has described himself. And then for 20 years, he turned independent and was an independent for 20 years. And shortly before running for Congress, he served one term in Congress, 2019, 2021. As uh, a Democrat. As a Democrat. So he's kind of done a lot of bobbing and weaving and dancing, tap dancing in Orange County. He got elected to one term. But what, is, what are the latest numbers you hear now? He's pulled out of the race. That's why he's on... Uh, He's our candidate for this. But what are the numbers you're hearing in terms of fundraising? Well, the, you know, this is just based on Twitter, uh, which we get 99% of our news from Twitter, just like you. Of course. Uh, um, but uh, 
the cash he had listed on hand, I think was $600,000. And the cash that Katie Porter had on hand was $14.5 million. So uh, slight disparity there. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to be a Richard Feynman to be able to do that math and figure out that uh, she had a significant advantage uh, going into that race. And I mean, as a sitting member of Congress, I think she also had an advantage. Uh, I mean, he would be running against a an established uh, member of Congress, whereas he'd be a former member of Congress, albeit one that took out Dana Rohrbacher, which, you know, that that is a little uh, feather in his cap. Kind of amazing. Dana Robacher served 30 years in Congress in Orange County and had the reputation, not a sterling reputation, a former surfer. I think somebody said he got hit too many times by his board as he was coming in or something. But uh, but anyway, Harley Rudy, I think uh, Ruda, I think qualifies here. He had to pull out. He saw the numbers. Uh, the district had changed. He was in the 48th and it's now the 47th, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh he saw the writing on the wall and the writing said, Harley, it's time to leave. So you have the worst week in California politics that we can see. So there you go. Yeah. Well, and you know, the truth is he'll probably go get a job somewhere making six times the amount of money he would have made. Oh, the Congress. Yeah. So the, it's the consolation prize, you know, as uh, working in journalism, we'll never get that consolation prize. Yeah, totally true. <laughs> Jim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying we will chat with you next time around. Thanks again. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.